So if you can turn with me to Galatians chapter 1, I'm going to read the first five verses, and I promise we'll get into the text this afternoon. This is Paul's greeting. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now I'll more or less take this text as it comes to us in the passage. I'll talk about Paul, the author. We'll talk about the source of Paul's calling to the apostleship, and then we'll talk at length, actually, about the Galatian audience. We want to identify who the Galatians actually are, and there's some important implications in interpretation around that question. So we'll spend most of our time on that last point. But first, Paul, the author. We'll break this down by talking first about who the author is, And then who the author is not. There's something we need to clarify here in this this greeting that Paul says. So who the author is. Now you might think that because Paul's name is in the introduction, it settles the matter. The Pauline authorship of this book. It does say right there, the very first words are Paul and Apostle. But in fact, the book of Galatians is one of the only ones, if not the only one, whose authorship has never seriously been questioned, even after the Enlightenment, when many, many things about the scriptures were being questioned. This is despite the fact, it's not as if Paul's other letters are unclear. It's not as if his name doesn't appear right at the beginning. For example, Romans, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. 1 Corinthians, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle. 2 Corinthians, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Colossians, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Those are actually, that's, that is the exact same introduction. I didn't notice that till I made this list. I thought I made a mistake, but uh, Colossians and 2 Corinthians start with the very same words, at least as translated in the ESV. And then Titus, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Those books, at least some of them, especially Titus that I know of, Pauline authorship has been questioned, but not in Galatians. Why not? Well, I think that it just has to do, and I only need to mention this because we talked about it in the last hour, it has to do with all the personal details about Paul included in this letter. Paul goes at length to explain how he was converted on the road to Damascus, how he was called to the apostleship, and he goes into detail about his travels. It's very obviously Paul. Now let's talk about who the author is not. We need to address that given the text later in the introduction. It says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. Is this like the books of First and Second Thessalonians? Those books start with this. Paul, Silvanus, 
and Timothy. Now I'm going to make the answer short. No, it's not like that. This is not a co-authorship situation. Basically, it's because of all the first-person singular pronouns that we find in this book. Now, if you have an, an actual paper copy of the Bible and you hold it at arm's length and you look at the first two chapters and try to let your eye get drawn to every time it says I, 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 it's all over the place in these first two chapters um, of Galatians. Now, if you have time later, open up 1 Thessalonians and do the same thing. You will find a lot of we. We give thanks to God. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. You'll see we all over the place in First and Second Thessalonians. And then when Paul finally does use a first-person singular pronoun in First Thessalonians, it's in chapter 2, verse 18, he has to qualify it. He says, um, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. So this is not the situation where we have co-authorship. It's not as if there were brothers with Paul writing the letter with him. This is Paul's letter and Paul alone. So now let's talk about the source of Paul's calling. He says this in an interesting way. Um, he first says this by saying from where his calling is not. He says, not from men, nor through man. Then he goes on, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now in the Greek, the first word there for men is indeed plural, and the second word there for man is indeed singular, just as we have it here. But what is Paul trying to say here? There were some interesting ideas about this. Um, I think the first thing is to note that these are contrasting phrases. He's obviously contrasting the idea of his call not being from men or man, whatever that does mean, he's contrasting it with the next thing he says, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. He is asserting, whatever exactly he means by men and man, he's asserting that he received his call to apostleship through the Lord Jesus Christ himself, without the use of means. Now, this is as opposed to Matthias. If you remember, Matthias was appointed an apostle to replace Judas in Acts chapter 1. <clears throat> he replaced Judas when the lot fell on him. Now, that's quite a different story from Paul. Paul saw a vision of the risen Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, who said to him, Paul, Paul, why, or Saul, actually, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Here's some thoughts I paraphrased from a commentator named Robert Stutzman. Now, one could argue that while Matthias was appointed by men, it was ultimately that he was appointed by God, and he did it through the agency of men, when the lot fell to Matthias. So what Paul is saying is, not, is that not only was he indeed chosen by Jesus Christ to his office of apostle, but exactly like the original 12 were appointed, he was chosen directly through the Lord Jesus Christ without the use of means. 
Now, I would clarify that the way that Paul was called is a little different than the first 12. Paul was the only one who had a vision of the risen, glorified Jesus Christ, who called him directly to the office of apostle. All of the others were chosen in Christ's earthly ministry before Christ had been crucified, risen, and ascended to be with the Father. Okay, so, but why does he say men versus man? He says, not from men, nor through man. Why didn't he just say not through man, or not through the use of means, or maybe positively assert it saying directly through Jesus Christ? So, some thoughts on this from the commentators, and I'll share with you kind of my take on it too. Some said it could be insignificant, It could be a stylistic choice um, to better make the comparison, but through Jesus Christ. Others said, well, it could be that the singular form is used in the Greek as a generic use of the word to underscore that he was not called by any human agency whatsoever. Or Paul may be stressing that he didn't receive his apostleship from any specific individual that's unnamed like Barnabas. Now, I'm not really qualified to uh, make any kind of grammatical argument here. Um, I, I certainly don't know the language well enough to be able to see style in it. Um, but I tend to prefer the second argument here, and let me tell you why. It just fits nicely into Paul's whole argument that follows in the first two chapters. Um, He's defending his apostleship and the validity of the gospel message that he preached to the Galatians. He is arguing that the Lord Jesus Christ himself called him to his office and that the Lord Jesus Christ himself gave him that gospel message that he preached to the Galatians. So this is an example of the New Testament version of thus says the Lord. It would make sense then that Paul would immediately underscore how he did not receive his calling and then how he did receive his calling. I think he's saying, I didn't receive it from men nor through a man, not through any kind of means through man whatsoever, but through the Lord Jesus Christ directly. And then that fits into what he says about his gospel. He says, that's, that's why my gospel is right, because I received it from God. Um, Some side notes about this. This kind of argument tells us something about Paul's opponents. It's likely that they didn't have an issue with the office of apostle, but they just had an issue with Paul's claims to the apostleship. Right, if they had an issue with the office of apostle, they would say, okay, so you're apostle. Well, we don't believe the other ones either. So this doesn't help our discussion here. One commentator notes this. They did not say, you received your apostleship from men and through a man, therefore it is not genuine. But they said this, you should thus have received it. And Paul's answer is that he received it in a way far above this, which made human source and human agency wholly superfluous. Another side note here that uh, this goes without saying, but the way that this is phrased does not deny the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Paul is not saying that he was not called by men nor through man, but something that's entirely unhuman through Jesus Christ. We aren't to read it that way. And you might ask, well, where do you get that in the text? Well, I don't get it from here. I get it from everywhere else. He is saying that he was called by no mere man. And we know this because of the testimony of the rest of Scripture, which clearly states the true humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we interpret Scripture with Scripture, and where it clearly says that the Lord Jesus Christ is a human, a man, we are not to interpret this passage as saying something otherwise. One more side note. Um, You can see in the light of this how immediately confrontational is this book. The confrontation doesn't start in verse 8, as some people have said. It starts way back in verse 1 in the fourth word. He immediately defends his claim to the office of apostle in the very opening words of the book. And kind of reading in between the lines, he must have known the challenges to his apostleship before he read this. And so the people he was writing to knew how his um, claim to the apostleship was being challenged. And so they would have read this and seen that, oh, he's speaking right out against us right away. So it's immediately confrontational. And why is he so on fire? Because the very gospel was at stake. And when the gospel is at stake, it's a matter of life and death. And I don't mean a matter of life and death in this world. I mean it is a matter of eternal life and death. People must be preached the gospel to be saved. That's why he was so on fire. Okay, the audience. So much for the source of Paul's calling to the apostleship and the author of this book by um, and, and his apostleship being by the immediate action of the Lord Jesus Christ. This next section deals with the audience. Paul gives his intended, his intended audience at the end of verse 2 to the churches in Galatia. If you look at an old map, there's going to be a Roman province of Galatia. So there you go, that settles it. He wrote to all the churches in that Roman province. Well, no, it's a little bit more complicated than that, and I did chose to choose to flesh it out here. So here's how we're going to take this. We need to understand something about the history of the Galatian region. Um, back to about 300 BC. So we're going to look at a brief history. And then in the second place, we're going to look at the sub-region of that Roman province called Galatia that Paul was actually likely addressing. And then number three, we'll look at some of the implications this has for interpreting the book. So number one, we'll look at a brief history. Two, we'll look at the sub-region addressed. And three, the implications this has for interpreting the book. So put your thinking caps on. If you like history, this will be easy for you. But let's look at a brief history of this Galatian region. Between 277 and 278 BC, there was a Celtic group called the Gauls who migrated from a region known at the time as Gaul. And this is that region is comprised of modern day France, and then it also included north of France is Belgium, and it also included parts of western Germany to the east, 
Um, and then also parts of northern Italy to the south. And I didn't see this written anywhere, but if you look at a map of France and then Italy, uh, Switzerland's right there. And so it must have included some parts of Switzerland also. <clears throat> they were a migrating group of people who conquered what would later be known as the northern region of the Roman province of Galatia. Because they were not simply conquering like... Um, Maybe Alexander the Great went and conquered the known world. He went and conquered, and he was just there with his army, and then they went home. They were not really doing that. They were conquering while they were migrating. And so the men brought their wives and children with them. Why is that important? Well, this would result in them maintaining an ethnic distinction in northern Galatia from all the people that were in the region before them. Fast forward a few decades in 232 BC. Boundaries were fixed for an independent state of Galatia, and that state was ruled by this ethnically distinct group that came from Gaul. At first they were ruled by three tribes, like a council of tribes, but eventually by 63 BC, power was consolidated to three kings. And then it was again consolidated in 40 BC when one of these three kings, um, Deuteros, murdered the other two. So here we are at 40 BC, we're getting closer to the time of Christ. By 25 BC, the area of this Galatian state became a Ro Roman province. Now here's the thing, when that happened, the independent Galatian state in the north, which was being ruled by a Galatian king, had also conquered southern lands, including Phrygia and Pisidia to the southeast and Lyconia to the south. So because of that, the Romans came and they said, okay, we conquered you, you're part of us now, we're going to make you a province. What lands do you own? These ones right here. So because of that, when the Romans came and took over, those southern areas, which included, um, uh, those southern areas were included in the Roman province of Galatia, even though the people in the south were not part of that ethnically distinct group of people in the north. And you can kind of see this also in history because that Roman province was subdivided into subregions, and those subregions um, more or less followed their ethnic roots. And so there was a region called Pisidia, Phrygia, and Lyconia. So that's the history of that Galatian province. So you can see how, when Paul says, to the churches in Galatia, how that could cause us to question, okay, what Galatians? Is it the ethnic people in the north? Is it the whole thing? Or are you talking about the places that Acts says you visited, which was the south? So Paul says this to the churches in Galatia. What does he mean? It's right for us to ask. What does he mean by this? And it's right for us to ask what would his audience have understood that to mean at the time Paul wrote this letter? And the answer is not really easy. The answer is it depends. In the Western, more Romanized portion of the empire, it was used to refer to the Roman province. Maybe the people didn't understand the history of that places and all the ethnic distinctions, and so Galatia was the entire province. It was just a, a geographical name. 
but in the east, where it was less Romanized, um, a less Romanized portion of the empire, it referred more to the ethnically distinct Galatian northern region of the province. You can see this fleshed out in scripture. Here's some examples from Luke in the book of Acts. He's speaking of Paul's journeys, and he distinguishes between these regions. So in Acts 16.6, he says, he's talking about Paul traveling with some companions, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. And then in Acts 18.23, he says, after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. But these separate, both of these um, both of these names, Phryg well, Phrygia, that is. Phrygia, my notes are messed up here. I don't know what I'm saying. Uh, Phrygia was not a Roman province. It was a region. Part of it was part of the Asia province, which was to the west, which is this way for you guys. The other part of it was part of Galatia. But Luke, who followed the Eastern tradition, may have been recognizing some of these ethnic distinctions in his languages. Then there's the way that Paul uses the name in Galatians. Although he had traveled through various ethnic regions in the southern part of Galatia, he refers throughout the letter to the group as one group. He speaks of them as being exposed to the same influences and changing together in Galatians 1, 6 and 8, in 3, 1 and 4, 9. Paul seems to be refer using the term in the Western tradition, referring to the Galatians as all of the diverse races of people which lived in the Roman province of Galatia. Stay with me, there's a lot of details here, I know. However, because Paul visited the southern regions of Galatia, and because of the references to his personal preaching to the Galatian churches, I believe he is clearly speaking to those churches that he helped to establish in the south of Galatia. Let me give you some textbook arguments for a southern Galatian argument here. If you read any um, Bible encyclopedia, um, there's going to be a, if you look up Galatians, you'll find these arguments in there. So whether in our church library, if you have an encyclopedia at home, um, these are just arguments that you'll find in there. You'll find some presenting a north argument and some presenting a south argument. Um, I, I'm pretty thoroughly convinced it's a south argument. Um, so here's some of those arguments. You'll find Acts 13 and 14, where Paul visits Galatia. It only mentions cities that are in the south. The southern region of Galatia would have been more vulnerable to Judaizing influences since the north was more isolated. Um, and, and by isolated there, I'm not sure if it's geographically isolated. I'd have to look again. But as I understand it, the, the culture there was more isolated. They were just more isolationist. And, they, and um, there's less evidence that Christianity actually took hold up in the north. Barnabas is mentioned in Galatians in chapter 2, verse 1 and 9 and 13. 
and he only accompanied Paul to the south of Galatia, but not beyond it. You remember after Paul's first missionary journey, he goes back to Jerusalem, there's the Jerusalem Council, and then they get sent out again, but they have a disagreement. They disagree on what to do with John Mark. Barnabas wants to take him, Paul doesn't, because I guess he deserted them, and so they had a sharp disagreement, and they separated. Paul went his way, Barnabas went his way, and so Barnabas was only with him in the south. Why would he mention Barnabas if the Galatians didn't know him? And then if you look, if you have a Bible with maps in the back, there's usually some maps that trace out Paul's three missionary journeys. Uh, You don't see him going up north, like nowhere near it. Uh, The northern border is the Black Sea, and none of those lines go way up there. So whose mail are we reading here? I believe it is most likely that the churches in Galatia refer to the ethnically diverse groups of people who lived in the south. Okay, so then you might say, well, so what? Well, what does that mean for us? Why are you spending all of this time on these details? Well, I said at the beginning of the last sermon that the false gospel of the Judaizers was perhaps the first theological challenge for the church. This is clear. It underscores it even more if this letter was written early. If Paul was writing to the southern region of Galatia, then it must be an early book because he visited there in his first missionary journey. If he was writing to the entire region, it has to be a later book. There's an important event in the book of Acts that's really related to the subject matter in Galatians, and that's that of Acts chapter 15. Go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 15 if you want now. Do you remember what that was about? I've already said it a few times. It's about the the whole issue of circumcision. And what I'm doing here, let me introduce this. I'm giving you an argument for a South Galatia that I actually didn't find. Not that it's unique to me. I'm sure somebody else has thought of this. But I really think we can look to scripture and with a degree of certainty say, no, this was an earlier book written to the south, south of Galatia. So, so just bear with me here. At the beginning of Acts chapter 15, it says this, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, that is exactly what Paul is dealing with in Galatians. So if it was written after the Jerusalem council, Why doesn't Paul reference the council in his letter to the Galatians? Now, I get it. You might look at that argument and say, you know, that's kind of an argument from silence. I'm not really satisfied with that. I get it, but I don't think we have to stop there. This is more than an argument from silence because of what we can find in the next chapter in Acts. In Acts chapter 16, after the Jerusalem council, Paul leaves. He separates from Barnabas over a disagreement on what to do with John Mark. Paul goes to Lystra and meets Timothy. And this is what it says that Paul was doing there. In Acts 16, verse 4, As they, Paul and Timothy, went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. 
the Jerusalem council happens and Paul goes out with partly for the purpose of telling the churches what happened in Acts chapter 15 and the decision of that council. It also says in Acts 15.36 that Paul wanted to return to the brothers in every city where he had proclaimed the word to the Lord to see how they are. So, if Paul had written this letter after the Jerusalem church, surely he would have mentioned the decision of the council on literally the same topic that he was dealing with in this book. And I think that we can see it very clearly in Acts 15 and 16 here. Okay, so how does this affect how we might interpret the book? I believe that the behavior of Paul writing this letter to the Galatians and giving them instructions before a decision of a church council says something about church polity in the apostolic age. Paul is not, if you listen to Presbyterians, for example, interpret Acts chapter 15, they'll say, well, there you go, that's the first assembly of the presbytery. And they're making this decision, and then they're going to go give instruction to all the churches, whatever they're called, in the I don't know what they're called in in Presbyterianism, but all the churches that are part of that presbytery. Paul didn't do that. He didn't have to wait for the authoritative decision of a church council to be reached before he gave the Galatian churches instruction. What did he need? He needed the word of God. And from the word of God, which he received by direct revelation, he told them what to do. And so I believe that the way that these events have played out better supports our own understanding of church polity, where you have independent local congregations that coordinate with one another for mutual benefit and the glory of God. The Jerusalem Council, even the, if you even just read the letter that they wrote, they were not giving an authoritative decision. They weren't telling them, you shall do this, and if you don't, you're anathema, like a lot of the church councils that came out maybe several hundred years later said. We don't see that here. So I do believe that the way that this book was written and the way that this came about, we can really see, um, uh, we, we can say something about church polity from all of this. Some points of application here. I've mentioned some of these a bit, but I'll I'll go ahead and say some of them again. Um, Number one, where is our ultimate authority? The validity of Paul's gospel that we have preserved in our scriptures rests on it being from God. He does not have an ex-cathedra proclamation here. He never says, I am apostle, Therefore, I have the authority to tell you the truth, so believe what I say. This is what it turned into over time. But that is not the example that we see in the New Testament. His argument rests on the authority of God's word. 
And so just as the Galatians were to receive the gospel that Paul preached to them as authoritative because it was a word from God, we accept the scripture now because it is the word of God. Our hope does not rest in the declarations of church councils. It doesn't rest in what a pope has said. It rests in the word of God. Second point here. There is a need we can see. that We can see the example set in this book. How strongly should we defend the gospel? We need to be quick in defending the gospel. And we need to not shy away from being very direct and strong even in our language to defend it. You read through this book, there's some strong and even harsh language. Paul calls the Galatians fools. He says, who has bewitched you? I am astonished that you have so quickly fallen away. It's like if he was right there, he would want to slap him across the face. What is the matter with you? Get this out of your head. You are saved by grace through faith alone. You do not need circumcision. That is another gospel. And notice how um, that is kind of a fine point. The Judaizers weren't saying, no, you don't have to repent, like people say now. They were saying, no, you don't have to repent. Uh, You don't have to believe. Just sign a card here and commit yourself to him and then do whatever you want. You can live exactly the same way. And now that you've signed this card, you're safe. It wasn't even that bad. They were saying, yes, repent, believe, do that. But you know what? You also have to be circumcised. And look how strongly Paul came against it. We have threats to the gospel way worse than that now. And we have an example here of how strongly we should be willing to defend it. Why do we do that? Not because we're arrogant, not because we think we're right and everybody else is wrong, but because it's a matter of life and death. If you tell somebody about Jesus and then you don't tell them you must repent of your sins and believe on him, you have left them just as hopeless as before they heard the name Jesus Christ. The stakes are high, and if we love our neighbor as ourselves, we should be willing to defend the gospel. However, in the third place, I think that there is a need for graciousness. I'm going to read that greeting again. Paul says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. So now, right there, given everything that we talked about, we can see how, whoa, he right away is defending himself. He's right away saying, I've got my apostleship, not from men, but or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And then he says some stuff about Jesus being raised from the dead. And then it's almost like he says, and all the people who are with me. So like I've gathered a coalition and I'm coming against you. And then he says to the churches of Galatia. But then he says grace to you. And peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives like he does in all of his introductions, some wonderful soteriological truths who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age 
according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. So while he's very, I think the word I used in the title of the sermon is terse, while he's direct right away, and then it continues on throughout the book, he says to them, grace to you. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He also says that to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, and then you read about the problems that they were having in Corinth. And we should ask ourselves, suppose that we were having some of these problems. Suppose that we had a problem of a man sleeping with his father's wife. Would we say grace to you and peace? Now, I'm not saying you sweep that under the rug, but there's a certain amount of forbearance. And it talks about that in Ephesians chapter 4, how we are to bear one another's burdens give one another the benefit of the doubt. Christians can fall into terrible, terrible sin. And look at the example of David. And we see throughout Paul's letters that while he can be harsh sometimes, he's also extending an open hand. And so there's this graciousness mixed with his harshness. And sometimes I just think we would react in a different way. We would be quicker to say, let's excommunicate them. Let's cast them out. They're not Christians. We're not going to say grace to you in peace. And so in here, we do have an example of how we should be willing to strongly defend the gospel. But that doesn't mean it's mutually exclusive to being gracious. Because ultimately, it doesn't depend on our own arguments. It does depend on the grace of God. Now, that also doesn't mean that you won't come to a time where you do separate. And there are procedures given, uh, some guidelines given in Scripture, like in Matthew 18, on how you deal with sin. And it may eventually get to the point where you just cut ties and you have to excommunicate somebody, etc., and do these hard things. But we should initially come to any challenge, any theological challenge, any even like interpersonal challenges. So if you feel somebody has a vendetta against you or they don't want to talk to you or they gave you a cross-eyed look the other day or whatever, you approach it and give them the benefit of the doubt and approach the problem with a level of graciousness. And we see that in the letters of Paul. So may God help us to understand this wonderful book of Galatians. I am looking forward um, to bringing you more on this in the next, the next time, whenever it is that I have to talk to you all. Um, we'll take up the next section, which is No Other Gospel, as titled in the ESV, and that will be very much a gospel message. Uh, we'll also kind of, what I like to do is take the approach of Let's look at the 50,000-foot level and down to the 10,000-foot, then to the 50-foot and kind of go up and down. And you'll, you'll get more of the pieces of Paul's argument in, verse, in chapters 1 and 2 if you first take a big look and look at what he's doing, what's his overall arc of that argument, and then we'll go back and look at the little pieces. So I pray that God will bless this series. I pray that he'll bless you. Uh, not because of any power in me, but because the Holy Spirit is gracious and he um, is always with his people. So let us pray. 
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that immediately we can see um, how clearly you made um, the gospel message uh, and how how through the, the efforts of saints before us, through the Apostle Paul and Peter and all the writers of the New Testament, that we can look back now and see the gospel message and and all of the issues that are attached to it very clearly delineated for us in Scripture. And, Lord, we're so privileged at this point in church history, having 2,000 years of saints who have thought about these things, who have written them down, and we just have this wonderful benefit of hindsight to be able to just read it. We pray, Lord, that in our hearts you would remove any fear of man, for that is sin. We are to fear God and not men, and so we are to do that in defending the gospel. And we pray, Lord, that our hearts would move in that direction of truly not fearing man, not fearing what man can do to us, but having this, like Jeremiah, a jealousy for the glory of God and a willingness to put it all on the line for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because the stakes are high. The very souls of men and women and children are at stake here. And so help us to be faithful in how we expound the scriptures and understand them and then take them out into the world and use them in our own interactions with um, our loved ones, our family members, those at work, and whoever you put Uh, into our paths. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.